I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening, and thank you especially to those of you who have recommended the show to somebody that y- you think might like it. I am I'm grateful for that, and it really is how new people hear about the show. So uh, you have my gratitude. This week, I am speaking with David Kern. He owns, along with his wife, he owns and operates the bookstore Goldberry Books in Concord, North Carolina. He is the author slash editor of 30 Poems to Memorize Before you before It's Too Late. I was about to say Before You Die, which would be probably a slightly different collection uh though though that's what i that's what i anytime somebody says before it's too late i always read that as meaning before you die i don't know if that's what's intended uh or if i'll say sometimes i'll say like i I hope we meet again before too long and what i always assume that that implies before one of us dies before death is both too long or too late right anyway that may not be what david intended with his uh, little anthology, but but he he is also the host of like three or four podcasts. Well, one one is forthcoming, uh, a kids podcast, but the other three are all quite successful, including the the wildly popular daily poem and close reads. Uh, he is a really really well read, really thoughtful, intelligent guy. And that's why I was especially curious when I learned that he has this this pet theory or a, a pet. Um, he so so he loved this movie Wild Mountain Time that came out in 2020 that was universally panned. Like everybody hated this movie. Critics hated it. Audiences hated it. The Irish hated it. The Irish Americans hated it. Everybody hated this movie, uh, but David loved it, and he didn't just love it on a personal level. He he has a defense for it. He he really thinks it's it's actually a genuinely good movie. So I was really curious about this, especially when I learned that it was written and directed by John Patrick Shanley. I I um, knew him from when I was a kid. I knew his work from when I was a kid, and he uh, he wrote this play outside Mullingar. That is that Wild Mountain Time is based on. So I read the play, I watched the movie, I talked with David. I still pretty strongly disagree with him. I think the movie is quite bad, but uh, it was a really enjoyable, really entertaining conversation. And he makes a strong case. He makes a pretty fucking strong case. He uh, he also indulges me in, in talking a little bit of uh, poetry shop. He, he also, and, and he helps with, he helps me figure out a, a problem I've had when it comes to religious poetry. I think he, he actually has a pretty smart read on all of that. But I, I enjoyed this conversation. I hope you will enjoy it too. I will, I'll, I'll have links to all of his stuff or at least some of his stuff on the show notes. Probably can't fit it all in the show notes. Let's get to that conversation right now. This is David Kern. <laughs> I love this weird movie and most people do not. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I, I love, uh, John Patrick Shanley and the play is really strange and sad and wonderful in a way that like, I have a kind of a working theory maybe of, of the play versus the movie. So I'm, I'm just curious though, because this was so outside Mullingar is a John Patrick Shanley play. 
It uh, premiered in Broadway in 2014. He's probably best mm -hmm. known as the author of um, uh, Moonstruck and Doubt, uh, though he also he's also written some wonderful short plays. Yeah, and it was it was a you know it was a success on Broadway, not a huge success, but it did well. And then yeah. it was adapted into a movie in 2020, written and directed by Shanley, and starring Jamie Dornan, Emily Blunt, Christopher Walken, and then. I don't know how to say the Irish name. Dearbla Malloy is the the Irish actor. Yeah. She, she's the only yeah. cast member from the original. The movie was yeah. a a big flop. I mean, in terms of like the critical response <laughs> to it, in terms of the box office, it was yeah. it's like a twenty five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. The the yeah. Irish Times said the accents aren't the are the accents are the only thing that aren't terrible in this woeful mixploitation flick. I mean, it's like there you know, you look up reviews of it, and, <laughs> and then you have people, other people who like hate the accents. Right. Oh no. I mean, like that was when the when the um, uh, when the trailer first came out. Apparently, all over Ireland, people just dunked on how bad the accents were. And there's like, you know, Christopher Walken's accent is not great. I would say, but I thought, you know, like it, to my idiot yank mind, it didn't particularly bother me. Which um, was Stanley's whole thing. Yeah. No, so, so I before we dig into what what there is to criticize about the movie, I just want to hear your because lots of people hated it you really loved it i want to hear like your your take on this movie for people because mo my guess is most people listening have not seen it yeah i mean if you're if, you, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen the movie there's probably going to come a point when you're going to need to go watch it because <laughs> the ending i mean i don't know if you can talk about this movie without oh i think without, we have to spoil it yeah, yeah I mean, we'll I have think to spoil fine. it at some yeah, point yeah. i won't spoil it yet though sure um so one of the things I love about this movie is I, oh, I and I'm sorry, I should say that the movie's title was well, Wild Mountain Time, whereas the right, so there's a, chain, right. yeah, a new title for the movie. So go, sorry, go ahead. Right. Um, also, uh, Shanley did Joe Vol versus the volcano, which is oh, that's right, one yeah, that, yeah, 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 which people you know kind of got a, I guess, it's kind of got a cult following now. My friend Josh Gibbs, who also really likes this, loves Joe versus the volcano. It's like his okay. one of his favorite movies. Um, so he's a big John Patrick Shanley guy, um, <clears throat> but. I love the weirdness of this movie that how it keeps you on your toes, how you kind of don't really know what it is that you're watching through most of it. And then when you get to the end, you're less sure of what you just saw. Right. <laughs> and, and so it's very rewatchable. Like I think a lot of people don't go back to rewatch it because they think it's so weird and bizarre and they get turned off from it. But I love the rewatchability of it. I've watched it. Um, Four, four times maybe since Whoa, it came out that is um, impressed well and partly because i sh you know i show people it because it's kind of one of those okay, i kind of want to see what people's responses are <laughs> and i've okay. got a couple friends we'll get together and watch movies on sunday nights periodically and it came up there i showed my wife it recently um she she liked it too although she didn't i don't think she's didn't love it quite, yeah didn't love it quite as much as i did okay. um i think that the the rewatchability is great like if, if you you see it's a very well put together it's a very well structured film so when you're going back and watching at the beginning and you know what the ending is he's laying all these hints out that's true. even yeah, in, no, there's, if there's so many visual things that he's like the... cluing you into it yeah um i also think that it's i mean frankly it's like a pleasant movie to watch even if you think it's kind of silly it's true. beautiful the cinematography is beautiful the the wild mountain time song is a beautiful song yeah. um as an American who who is not trying to like like I'm not worried about how people feel about the Irish accents. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm the kind of person that Shanley was making the movie for. He told Jamie Dornan, 
you know, the irony is Jamie Dornan's from Belfast. Right. He's Irish. And, and he's Irish. Yeah. And he, he talks about how if they were doing actual accents that the people who live in the place where the film takes place have, you'd have to have subtitles on the screen. Right. It's like it's yeah. like Welsh or, or Old English or, you know, yeah. reading like a like, different language. Emily Blunt's accent, I think they're, the observation the Irish critic made was that it's it's sort of like a universal Irish accent. It like blends elements from, but yep. it's, it's very pleasant and recognizable to an American ear. And, and that was, is Irish American. He's not. Right. That's he, the whole purpose. You know, yeah. he said, I, you know, I want this to be for the people, my people who came from Ireland or are interested in Ireland, but they, they don't actually, they can't understand what people from that part of Ireland actually sound like. Shantley's the kind of guy who just, he kind of doesn't care. <laughs> He's oh, kind no, of, that's he's, certainly he's, true. He's not real. He does whatever he's he not, wants. He's not trying to make a, like a realistic film here. He just doesn't even go for that. So I'm, yeah, there, I mean, there's so many paths to follow because I am curious about the, I definitely understand not wanting to get bogged down in verisimilitude because that, that can be really tiresome. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly like, there was a, there was a stretch when I feel like I, I was like being, being asked by my wife to watch a bunch of movies that just felt like like misery porn like you were just watching like really <laughs> gritty representations of like actual shitty small existences and i thought like well well that's i believe that but like ugh, yeah. what am i you know so this is <laughs> yeah this is certainly like you know i think people have made like lucky charms jokes and like it's a very magical <laughs> it's like magical yeah. you know saint patrick's day irishness why so I believe that that was deliberate. So why? Like, why that choice? Like, why not make a movie about Irish Americans in, in New York, say? Like a, a Alice McDermott story. Um, uh, I guess we have to ask, I don't know. I don't want to put words in Shanley's sure, yeah, mouth yeah, as far as that goes. Yeah. But I yeah, think his, his is... intention I'm less interested in than like, what is that? What is the effect or what's the, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, I don't know. I to me, I think this is. I think we don't as twenty. What century are we in now? Twenty first century Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that um, we're great at folk tales and fairy tales, like just in terms of okay, in terms of um, internalizing them, feeling like the right. You know, we want to watch. Uh, we're okay with it for kids' movies, sort of, but even there, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. they like are encroached upon by, like the things we care about now and we want to watch the movies we care about are you know like movies about gangsters and right people who crawl into to horses to survive winter and uh, <laughs> you know uh, and even our romances tend to have to have like it has to be like hard sci-fi or have some kind of like groundhog day effect going on uh for us to to like accept the world but here we have like all these allusions to mythology and to folklore and to fairy tales. And I think that we don't really speak that language. And so a lot of that kind of, and I don't mean this as a criticism, it's just, yeah, it yeah, kind of yeah. flies. It just kind of goes over our heads. Sure. And so it, 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 the whole world begins to feel like it's a little bit haphazard. So when you watch a movie like this and there's the stuff about the crows and there's the stuff about the bees and the, yeah. and the birds and the, and the time, the wild mountain time, not T I M E T H Y M E, you know, there's all these allusions to things that are like really rich parts of Celtic and Irish folklore. And I think when you put all those pieces together, you begin to have a puzzle that actually looks like something, but when it feels haphazard, 
you don't it, it, it doesn't make sense and so it, it can it makes for kind of an unusual watch where then you're kind of just like well emily blunt sings that song pretty well <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah you know yeah if that was her real voice she sang quite well i thought it was good i mean She's yeah it, it is poppins doesn't she uh yeah no that's yeah right no that makes sense yeah no i mean it is so there's so much prettiness in the movie i mean just the just the lushness of the grass and the hills in this movie you feel like mm -hmm. it's, it's like a, a major part of of what you know of the story and partly just because i read the play before i saw the movie and i have not read the play right so so i'll say like what was striking is that the play uh starred um th there's there is a it's a rom it's a romance basically it's these two these two uh once young people now kind of middle-aged people growing up on farms next to each other and uh, rosemary and Anthony and there, it's sort of clear that they they were meant to be paired up and somehow never have been. And there's this, she's sort of pining for him and he maybe is pining for her, but also has this other problem that he doesn't want to talk about. And in the play- <laughs> I like how you put that. <laughs> well, right, I mean, it's, it is, uh, it's, 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 yeah, it's just, we'll get to it. We'll get to it, that, that's a big <laughs> one. Yeah, it's a big part of it, but uh, in the play, uh, Anthony is played by uh, Brian F. O'Byrne, who's a terrific character actor. Mm -hmm. uh, and Rosemary is played by Deborah Messing, who's probably best known from Will and Grace. Uh, and, and apparently was, you know, her performance was celebrated. She, she apparently did, did very well. Uh, she is a beautiful woman. She's also like 15 years older than Emily Blunt. And Brian F. O'Byrne is a wonderful actor. He's not a Calvin Klein underwear model as Jamie Dorn. Like he's, he is, he looks like a character actor. Jamie yeah. Dorn literally is an underwear model and he's probably best known from being the male lead in the 50 shades of gray. So the, although now he might be in an Oscar, you know, Belfast. Might oh, Belfast. That's Oscar right. For okay. best picture yeah, yeah, yeah. This year. That's and true. ironically, I like that you're bringing this up because a lot of people are complaining, so to speak about how, that movie is about like no nobody's parents are actually as sexy as Jamie Dornan and the the, <laughs> the his wife in that movie. Like nobody's parents actually look that good. So right. yeah, I mean it's true here too. Emily Blunt and Jamie Dornan yeah. are pretty beautiful people. And well, and particularly because he's meant to be the he is a sort of a, a little bit of a fumbler, and he's kind of in the play. He's made he, both in the play and the movie. He's kind of made up made fun of for not being enough of a man. Though the logic behind that always seems kind of squirrely, uh, and it. It doesn't see, I'll say it, it it's not typecasting. <laughs> it it's it's right. sort of, it feels, you know, like they, they, they grub him up and they put him in some ugly clothes. Boy, he still sparkles. Like it, it is a little, I mean, in that way, I guess it is. It's sort of, it all feels a little bit fabulous, a little bit magical. Though John Hamm is, is, a, is a, he gets a little less uh, true to life as the story goes on. He becomes a little more of a fairy tale character, but he at least kind of, comes in as a as like a rich New York asshole and there's a there's a little feel like there's a little little like acid flavor yeah. that cuts through some of the oh yeah you know, fairy tale sweetness of the of the movie yeah and you know I don't know I mean when I talk about fairy tales I don't necessarily even mean um that you know the fairy tales a lot of times were they weren't necessarily always no no Happy. fairy tales are brutal i mean yeah i've been i've read the grim fairy tales yeah. my, i've talked about this actually on the podcast before with my daughter and like there's some really brutal stuff in there even more brutal than the the blood guts and and uh you know weird sexual suggestion is the 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 bleakness and the arbitrariness mm -hmm. of so much of the yeah. like there's there's they, they very much take place in a like a, a a universe ruled by chance in many cases well and i think that this movie 
is taking place in the shadow of those kinds of stories. And so for the characters, you know, the idea of being cursed is this really key idea. Like he thinks he's cursed. His dad thinks he's cursed because of his mother's side. Right. Um, And so they're sort of like inner turmoil, the, the problems that they're having with their own, like psyche and figuring out who they are. That seems to be informed by this idea that, yeah, I'm cursed. And so you, then you have these images of like the crows and they're talking about who's going to shoot the crows and like crows are this really intense image in like yeah. Celtic mythology, you know, oh, crows yeah. were sacred. You had like the war goddess came as a crow. <laughs> so you have all these like images hovering and of course crows literally hovering over these characters. And I think that that bleakness is like informing the worldview that oh, these people yeah. now farm in, if that makes sense. Oh, totally. And the, the, the so rosemary's father chris muldoon is famous for shooting at the you know he's t- tears yeah. holes in the sky shoots at the sky and there is i think yeah. there is certainly a sense that he's sort of furious at heaven um mm-hmm. and at, you know whether these are old gods or new gods or whatever and in the play i don't i don't think this is in the movie at all but in the play uh there's a pretty i mean it's it's both in shanley fashion it's like both wrenching and very funny there's the story about yeah. how he had a uh, a son named that was named after him, Chris Muldoon, who was mm. born with a with a terrible birth defect and died soon after. And mm. it was after that that he started shooting at the crow. So there mm. is very much a sense that he's sort of shaking his hand at the gods. Uh, so mm. and and I mean and there's like it is a little bit lighter in the movie than in the play, but there's you know, it's like a fair amount of talk of depression and suicide, and they're they're, yeah. they're feel very isolated out on this these farm and there these farms and there's not i mean there is a it's it again it's more explicit in the in the play there's a lot of talk like wasted years and like uh you know he was part of everything now that part's where like the fog wiped from the glass and what am i given that a tiny thing certainly there's i mean there's Hmm. there's a lot of reflection on how puny and insignificant they are uh and so it's a it feels a little bit like the moments in it that are very cartoonish and then there's there's a really dark set of concerns. I, I mean, that's something Shanley does in other work, and, and I often love it that he he's able to give character. His characters often have an ingenuousness that feels like just just a hair away from being corny, mm. but it's but it allows him to take them to certain places that might be hard to get to otherwise. I wasn't ever sure yeah. in the movie if he got the, that tone under control. To me, it felt like I was. I, my, my my instinct is always like a, a writer should not direct his own work in, in almost all cases. And so I, I did, I kind of wished he had had someone else to play tug of war with. Yeah, he could have had Kenneth Branagh direct this and then he could have directed Kenneth Branagh to Good Night Belfast for Kenneth <laughs> right. Yeah, they could have traded <laughs> off. Just because I think a little bit of that, you know, somebody to say no to you is maybe a good thing in, so in if, something like this. Where where do you find those, um, those which, where do you find that lacking? Like in terms of not being able to really settle on that tone? Oh, I mean, I, I thought... And again, part, you know, so so there's again, it, it, it's partly unfair because I am coming from the play. Like one mm-hmm. big difference between the play and the movie is that there's there's no scenery in the play. You know, you don't you you yeah, hear yeah. about the farms, but you're just, everything is sort of on a dark stage. The, yeah, yeah. There's a line when she she says, "Do you not love the farm?" And he says, "I hate it for a prison." And what came to mind because it is truly like the most beautiful emerald landscape you've ever seen in your mm-hmm. life, and I was reminded of. Uh, Mel Gibson and his Hamlet, you know, <laughs> lolling on a hillside, looking out at these sort of beautiful rolling hills, and saying, "Denmark is a prison." I think, like, I, I, you know, if like the 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 bleakness that 
that the character's voice felt a little harder to place in the world that we were seeing. I thought there was a lot of explanation of, uh, I mean, part of it maybe is just like in a movie, you want to give a little sense of, um, you want that you you don't want to be cramped in a kitchen the whole time, but it there yeah, were there were yeah. lots of you know the, the whole opening was a kind of an introduction of all the backstory, but the backstory comes out pretty well. I think like even the American cousin who was the the John Ham part, <laughs> he's really an off he's an, sort of an off stage threat in the play, but you know his real significance is the choices that Tony and Anthony make with mm. regard to him. They're not right. really his choice. So I, I felt like I. He, he was opening things up in order to make it big and cinematic, but it felt like the he let some of the steam out of the pressure cooker of the play that way. Mm. So it didn't hold the tension. Did, yeah, I, I think I think it just, it, there were also just like odd little moments. There was a lot of like slapstick with Jamie Dornan, which felt like they were just trying really hard to make him be laughable when it just he just looks like, like an underwear the, like model falling out of a boat yeah i was gonna where he's fishing and yeah and like that's in, fishing in a way that feels like it's not even it doesn't even feel like that credible that it he, he's trying you know like really good slapstick you sort of your heart goes out to the guy where he like you understand what he's trying to do and then he fucks up and he falls in his face and yeah. it's funny with him yeah. it just felt like he was doing goofy shit and i thought well well huh then there was that even that weird moment i don't know if you caught it early on where they um they say, I think they even flash back to it. They refer to John Kelly, the grandfather, and they say, well, you're as crazy as John Kelly. He thought he was a fish. And they yeah, whip out a photo. That. So what is the, so tell us about the photo. Oh, uh, oh, I don't know if I remember the exact photo. I was just going to mention the, the fish thing because I think that's what they're trying to harken back to with the boat stuff. Oh, he yeah, falls no, into the water. Right, yeah. The, I, I actually, man, I don't know if I remember that what's exactly the, the photo. photo. They whip out a photo and it's a sepia tone photo of, of Jamie Dornan in weird makeup doing a big goofy grin. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, It just yeah, feels yeah. like, oh, no. Yeah. Like, they say, like, he looked, just tell us he looked like John Kelly. Don't show, you know. So, again, it felt like there are these moments that felt like they were campy or sort of deliberately goofy, but then I... I it, Do you think they're just trying to appeal to, you know, the romantic comedy audience with that stuff? I, I think maybe. I mean, it, it did feel like... Because I... My suspicion is that a lot of what there is to love, because I know you're not alone, you're not the only person who loves this movie, but my suspicion is that a lot of what there is to love in the movie is sort of what's there in the play. And then to yeah, my probably. mind, there's a lot of kind of added on decorative elements that feel not, like I would say you get the scene where Emily Blunt sings Wild Mountain Time in the bar. And mm -hmm. that's quite a beautiful scene. And you even have a little moment at the end where they're singing together and you see mm -hmm. sort of all of the, the living and the dead and all of their their family, you know, all of the people in their lives are sort of in the audience in the pub. And it's a mat mo it's like a moment of magical realism that feels credible mm -hmm. and, and feels like it, it is it's connected to everything that has happened in the movie so far. But most of the most of the big uh, like the whole trip to New York and the John Hamm stuff and the Rolls Royce, like a lot of that stuff felt like it was that's not in the play hitting. No, 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 none of that's in the play. A lot of that felt like it was hitting um, hitting romantic comedy beats that I thought like, well, don't, just like go ahead and make the even weirder movie that's yeah. just like that you could make and just yeah. forget all this other stuff. You, I wonder if there was like studio notes. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there were. I mean, there had to be, right? Because he yeah. had all these like movie stars. 
you know? Can, can we talk about the ending though? Because please, yeah, please, like, why don't you, okay. yeah, you give an account of it. Cause it is, I have very mixed feelings, but it's fascinating. It's a, it's a very interesting ending. So throughout the movie, Jamie Dornan's character, Anthony has, he has had this problem that he doesn't want to talk about to anybody. And he tells Rosemary, Emily Blunt's character, that at one point he did tell a young woman this that he liked, and she fled. <laughs> yeah. So, so the the movie is telling us, you know, that he has something, this dark secret that he doesn't want to talk about, and she is trying to get him to pay attention to her, and he, for various reasons, but predominantly because of this secret, sort of doesn't allow himself to fall in love with her. He doesn't allow himself to have genuine affection for her or make a connection or anything. Um. And then at the end of the movie, it, I, one thing leads to another yeah. and they, they have a conversation and she finally convinces him, tell me, tell me what this thing is. And he says, I, I believe, I, 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 am I, believe a I'm be, I am a honeybee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, that seems to be pretty straightforwardly what he means. Like, yeah. I believe well, I'm a honeybee. Yeah. Sorry. Right. Go ahead. And, and, and well, and then she says, well, everybody thinks there's something. And yeah, everybody said, thinks there's something they're not, which I thought right, was quite right. quite nice. Yeah. And then he says, "No, I, I really do." And she's like, "Well, I think I'm a swan." He says, "No, you don't." <laughs> so you don't I'm literally curious. think you're a swan. Yeah. Do you do you think do you take that at face value? Do you think that he literally thinks that? Do you think that he has some kind of mental health issue? Like a lot of people are reading this in a lot of different ways, and I think how you read that line within the context of what they're trying to do. Is going to determine yeah. a lot about how you feel about this movie when you rewatch it, for example. Right. So, and and, and you're right that throughout the movie there are uh, seated in these. You know, there's like a scene where the dad's watching bees, you know, being smoked out of the hive, and there's she's she's a smoker. She finally quits smoking for him, and so there are like a number of these. Little, early on, as a child, he's he's sniffing flowers, right. he's and then Fiona laughs at him because yeah. he's got pollen on his nose. Yep. yep. Yeah. So no, they there are they they do build up to it and he even you know he uses language about he's going to fly out in the fields he says he feels like he's flying uh yeah i mean that to me is classic john patrick Shanley. like that's like my the first encounter i had with him was this weird little semi-magical realist series of plays called welcome to the moon and it's like a play about a guy who falls in love with a mermaid so like that kind of scene i i'm i almost don't care if it's meant to be I mean, to, to, my, to my mind, like the, the uh, I had a mentor um, when I was a kid who used to say that the difference between a, a symbol and a, a metaphor is that a metaphor is, is both the literal and the figurative, you know, with this, like, and I think like, I, that's sort of how I, how I take it. I, I'm not, I'm not all that concerned about like, oh, what does this say about saying about mental illness? I think I do take it at face value. And then I also take it as, as having metaphorical weight. And he says, you know, he, yeah. cause he also says that he thinks, she says, am I a bee? He says, no, you're a flower. So there, there is, I mean, there's mm -hmm. something really childlike and touching in this moment about it. I, I do think that that some of the, the, the incredibly strange and genuine wonder of that moment is a little bit undercut again by like the sexiness of the movie stars and the gorgeousness <laughs> of the movie and like these like goofy slapsticks, move, you know, it's that, that's where I felt like I didn't, the honeybee stuff, I, I didn't object to that. I just sort of wish he had committed more to making that movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I actually, I, I see that for me in a way, him, Jamie Dornan being as beautiful as he is kind of like <laughs> makes it funnier 
<laughs> because you know someone like him would normally have this like degree of confidence about them right, right. and he has this I, I don't know i think for me that works but i do see what you're saying about the the tone like it, it could have even gone weirder do, do you i i really think this is one of those movies you have to watch on its own terms yeah oh yeah you can't certainly. you um i think a lot of people you know reading i went back and reread some of the <laughs> reviews and capsules and stuff yeah. and people are just like <sighs> It just makes me think people don't know how to read. <laughs> no, well, because... that's certainly true. People definitely don't know how to read. Uh, and yeah, and like, I think that- They're trying to make it something that it's not. Right. Well, no, I, I think like people definitely came to it deciding that it was going to be one thing or another. I think my kind of my objection to it is mostly that I I wanted it to read itself on its own terms a little more than, than it maybe it did. It felt like it was- Like define its own terms more clearly maybe? Well, yeah, and and just go ahead and be its own weird movie. It did, it did, you know, like there's a uh, and one of the things that the the Irish Times um, uh, review made fun of was that they're constantly referring to the fact that they're Irish, and even like the first line of the movie is "Welcome to Ireland." And I, again, like I I didn't again. I think like it's totally fine to make a movie that's effect effectively for like Irish Americans or for like Americans kind of imagining a version of Ireland. But it did feel like sticky in in ways that I didn't like. But like part of what my experience with with his write his stage writing is that it is it's it's like walking a razor's edge because if you if you wink at what you're saying even a little bit, it totally fails. The only way to do it is just yeah. like commit fully, fully, fully to these sometimes like insane lines and then they can be really really powerful but this it just felt like mm -hmm. there was a in a way like it's the problem that you get sometimes when you when you have the wrong director you know directing a movie and where he's sort of mm -hmm. trying to force it to be a different thing in this case i just i don't know what kind of compromises he was making but i didn't it felt i i i i felt like it was uh it was a movie that sort of believed it was something other than the movie that it was in a way, you know, like it was sort of like all the characters in the play in yeah. the story. Do you, so um, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of like this being like a folktale. Okay. Yeah. And yeah one yeah. of the things that's common in folktales as like, a, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know that folktale writers would say that this was the goal, but that's common in folktales is that they're like meant to be like a unifying tale or unifying like idea or story or something for a community it gets passed on right yeah. like often an oral tradition and and sometimes they're cautionary tales sometimes they're not but in some way they're like uh, a story that is meant to kind of define who you are yeah. and <clears throat> i think that in a way shanley was trying as an irish american to make a folk tale for irish americans not so much for the Irishman who lives in this county and could understand what they're saying. Oh, it goes right. back yeah, to the no, accents, it's, not, sure. it's not for them. Yeah. But I, and I think that he's trying to like, he is calling upon or, or sort of, you know, um, you know, using, I don't know what, what whatever you, phrase you want to use all of these allusions to that folklore and that mythology that was from the homeland. And then he's putting it together. And I think for me, that's why, though the the sort of degree to which it's calling upon its irishness works because he's speaking to a particular audience so that doesn't bother me the logic of that doesn't bother me i agree that it's a little bit like i don't know if you said kitschy or what 
sticky, a little yeah. bit sticky, a little bit. I mean, in a way, a little like cute or something. I don't sure, know. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that, but I think that, like, I think well, that's what he's doing, and so I kind of am just like, this is what you're doing. It has its moments when it works. It has its moments when it doesn't work, but I can see what you're going for, and I accept that and the parts that I don't like, I can sort of set aside because I like the rest of it. Right. But I don't know if that's, I can understand if that's not what everybody wants to do, you know? Yeah. I, I think, I think if this movie had been a more earnest version of, of itself or a more earnest version of like the, an adaptation of the play, again, the play feels like it would be really powerful to watch on stage. It doesn't feel like it needs to be adapted into a movie. Like it, I wouldn't think I mean, somebody gave him the opportunity to do it, and I guess it's hard to make movies. And so, if you have the opportunity, you do it. But it just felt like, oh no, don't don't adapt this one. Like, don't, like I do imagine that it probably would have been disliked for different reasons had it been like I think it w it probably would not have been a a hit either yeah. way. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit curious because there there's a there's some sort of like. Uh, um, like philosophical or theological suggestions in the movie that my guess is that if there had been a little bit less kiss me, I'm Irish to it, then, then there's might like some, I, I could imagine contemporary critics uh, fussing at the movie for some of, you know, some, what might be seen as like traditional, uh, a, yeah, like a traditional well, like, vision of romance. Like I mean, in some ways it's a yeah. very old fashioned romance. I saw one review that said, Oh, I wish I could point to it. I don't remember who it was. I just happened across it. And it said something like, this is a movie that pretends to be a feminist movie, but in reality, it's the opposite. And so this reviewer hated it for that. And sure, I was like, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to figure out where they got the idea that it's a, trying to be a feminist no, movie. No, I don't think it's trying to be a feminist movie. I just think it's trying to tell a story. I mean, like, and that's, that's the thing. It, it's not, it, neither is it an anti-feminist movie. It's telling right. that that part of the yeah. movie, you know, like that scene, which is in the play, it's the very last scene in the whole thing. But the scene where he goes into her kitchen with her, mm -hmm. that to me yes. was the strongest part of the movie. And it also felt like the moment where the two of them really fell together, like their chemistry lit up in that scene. Yeah. It felt like they'd, yeah. in a way, like it felt like the movie had warmed up enough. And I thought like that scene was terrific. It's terrific in the play. It's terrific in the movie. And it's also a very kind of old fashioned romantic scene. I mean, it's, it is, I'll say like, it's one of the- It's like a Neil Simon. Right. Well, it, it, it is, but it's also a little bit, it's got a bigger heart than some Neil Simon plays do. And it, like, that's true. Even like the, 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 the sort of the weird little moment where she, she's trying to suss out whether he's gay or not, or what his story is, yeah. where she's like asking, do you, do you think of what I wear when I wear less? I mean, there's, there's like, it's such a, <laughs> yeah. it's such a decorous, uh, fully clothed suggestion of sex. And yet it's so electric. I mean, it's really yeah. like a, it's a wonderful scene and it's the two of them together feel very much like they could be in a, in a romance from 70 years ago. And the one thing that's great about this, I think is that it creates like it's condensed into a room, maybe yeah. two rooms, I guess. So it has that element of being on the stage, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like yeah. the, I think what worked on the stage is now work being translated to this right. one room. Yeah. And even the way the camera works, like the way they're crossing back and forth, you know, there'll be times when they're, They'll be having a conversation and like they'll pass it pass pass across each other. Yeah. And it's clear that they're not like she is trying to create tension to figure out 
what is really going on with him. And yeah. he's like turning around and rejecting her and going in the other room and trying to be busy. And she's just constantly moving towards him and he's moving away. And then in the end, they move towards each other when he's finally and and when they do finally move together, he is finally able to say what his issue is. Right. And and then and then it's in her court. Yeah. Like, and then and then they are the irony is well, I don't know if that's, this is irony, but the interesting thing is they then leave the room. Right. Which, and then she has to decide that while they're leaving in the car. Yeah. She has to decide how she's going to respond to his coming to her finally. Which which I thought that, you know, they have a, they do have a weird moment where she drives away. He, she's driving him. To, theoretically, she's driving or essentially she's driving him to the airport to pick up John Hamm, who's coming to Ireland to propose to her. Uh, she drives her truck into a tree, seemingly <laughs> like on purpose and kind of for no reason. I did. I did feel like that was a, that was a place where I sort of I I was. Had they not animated the John Hamm character so much, had they not made that so much a living, breathing part of the movie, then you could do what you do in the play, which is like, well, that'll get resolved later. Like, we don't need to worry about him because this is this is the story in this. Yeah, room and when you cast people. it with John Draper in it, you got to right. It. You got to go back, and then he meets a nice lady on the plane anyway. So, so that's yeah, okay. good for him. Well, can I ask you a question yeah, yeah, about the no, you're, you're mentioning like the the sort of ideas and theological or otherwise that are kind of threaded throughout the movie was there yes. what was there a particular something that you were thinking of well so right so there's besides the, fate <laughs> early on yeah there's fate early on oh i was what i was going to say so it was just that like in in a play versus in, in a movie uh physicality is really really charged like having somebody yeah. on stage touching each other or like a kiss or even like someone in underwear is like really really powerful on stage where in a movie like you have like 50 naked people chopping people's heads off and you don't you don't blink that was a scene where i thought like the you got a real sense of the the power of a little bit of physical movement and a little bit of touch. It was really, yeah. really wonderful. That, you put so them you, in like that bottle. Yeah, where she it, just reaches across his yeah. hand and it just you feel yeah. like you're, the hair stand up on the back of your neck. So no, I thought I mean that was that's a that's a wonderful scene. Um, yeah. So early on, and this I don't remember in the play. There's a scene where the little boy um, Anthony sees a star low on the horizon out the window, and he says. He seems to be praying, and he says, "Why did you make me as I am?" Mm -hmm. And then later, you know, in basically the father's death scene, he sees the same star, and and there is a and then there's um lines that are in the play that he he says to Rosemary. It's a little more offhand and in the in the play about you know the we're on the land or the the animals are are over the land and we're over the animals and something is over us. Something tends to us the way we tend Mm -hmm. to the land, Mm -hmm. and then. She has a line in that last scene, I think, about it may not be explicitly God, but it does seem to be like a, there's a sense of providence. And I wondered about that in the movie because in the play, there's a lot of, and, and then there's, there also is like the, the Chris Muldoon shooting at the sky, though, though he didn't <laughs> lose a child. So it's a little more mystique. Like he seems to be shooting at the sky only because of this weird little, little turf uh, disagreement. Um, in the play, there's a lot more, there's some of that is in there, but also in there is a lot of despair, a lot of a sense that like nothing is looking over over us. There's, there's, you know, our lives are essentially meaningless, except for maybe a little bit of joy we find between each other. And I, I was left feeling like they were sort of interesting possibilities raised and then I didn't quite know what to make of them, particularly in the tension between the two. Like it was, it was seemed like a strange turn, you know, again, it was like, 
an existentialist yeah. directed, you know, could have directed the play. And then, like, you know, like almost a, not necessarily a Christian, but like a, you know, somebody with a much more hopeful vision of the universe seemed to make the movie. Have you seen Doubt or read the play? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's wonderful. Because do you find that when you read his, I'm trying to remember when that came out, I'm looking it up, but do you remember when, like, do you feel like when you read his work that he is, is attempting to answer the questions that you're seeing there? No, I, I don't think he is. And that's part of what I, I, I found really, um, really effective about doubt is that there's not a, it doesn't at all answer the question of whether, I mean, there's a lot of things that there's a lot of doubt in the, in the, in the play in the movie, but it, yeah. you, you are left with, uh, with a sense that the, the questions are not going to be answered for you. And I, right. I didn't, it's not that I wanted them to be answered in the movie. It's just that there seemed to be an articulation of, or an expectation of providence or of a kind of a godlike presence that didn't maybe maybe it's just because i read the play and there's so much despair yeah. and bleakness there and there's such a sense that they're the problems they face and the loneliness they deal with and the she does she talks about suicide and, and, and depression in the movie but it is it's much yeah. more tossed off that all felt like it was connected to the sense of being abandoned by the universe and so then seeing all of this invocation of providence in the movie, it then made me wonder like, well, so the, what does that have? Like, does that say anything about their despair or their loneliness or their, it just felt like a, a strange. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Why is she talking about it? Right. Why, why is this in, why bring it up in the movie? And then, and then why, you know, like set it, juxtapose it with a lot of the same problems that in the play were juxtaposed with, with a mostly much bleaker outlook. Hmm. Yeah, and, and the answer might partly be the same reason that there's some romantic comedy uh, goofy. Yeah, it's like so pessimistic do movies that, do not do well. Well, do you think that any of this could have to do with like some of the imagery of like like she, it talks about her as a swan and and um, Swan Lake is a big part of the the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, Though they make much more of it in the movie, and it feels they have like right. they even take her. She goes to see the ballet in New York. But I'll say in the play there it is also there's also a sense that it is a a slightly sad coping mechanism. It it is this very lonely cursed figure, right? Like, but then when you get to the bee, like that's a the bee and the flower is this very communal the united. The united is the pollination, which again, this movie like references sex in all these like yeah. very indirect ways, like a lot, yeah. especially in the in the end, in ways that are very like you know, unusual. <laughs> uh, right, yeah, but, I, but I, I mean, that I, I thought is that's all lovely. I mean, that's all. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was quite nice. And, but that seems to like that image, like of of their communion, of their relationship, like that's more romantic than most romantic comedies are going to give you. Oh, oh, sure. No, I mean, again, like I don't, I have no ob objection to that. I, yeah, yeah. I think um, uh, it feels less desperately needed here i think like, yeah it has, it's just know, earned less yeah yeah it just it it's a it's a lovely strange thing and and i do wonder a little bit about the this question of like having a metaphorical sense of like oh i'm like a swan versus i literally believe i'm a bee that i, I wondered <laughs> if there is something interesting there about yeah questions of of like belief or uh because she even says like i go to church but i wouldn't go if you didn't go I only go mm. to to see you there. 
I found, you know, I'm always interested in, in like belief and like half belief and, you know, so I, I mean, that yeah. stuff, that stuff, I, 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 that's the movie I wanted, right? That's the stuff I, I wanted this to deal yeah. with more. There, there is a question I had for you that yeah. it's a little bit less played up in the movie, but the story of the father and the mother is actually a much weirder story than it seems to be at first. So, so the Christopher Walken, the, you know, Jamie Dornan's dad, old grouchy Irish guy, Tony, <laughs> Uh, he sold off just the right of way, just this little stretch of land between his farm and the road. He sold it off some decades ago, 20, 30 years ago to his neighbor for 200 pounds because he, he needed money. We're told that he was he was in a bad way. He needed money. Yeah. So it's it's been a, sort of a, a, a minor but notable inconvenience for for decades for them. And he wants to get it back. Uh, where where he he talks about his son with total scorn. I mean, he's really re pretty awful to his son, and he's awful also. And you know, the beloved mother, well, his beloved wife, who's dead, he refers to his her, his son as belonging to her side. He's a Kelly. You're all Kelly. You're not a Riley. You're you all crazy. You don't come from me. I don't see a plat. I don't see a straight path from me to you. You're not mine. You're the you're the, you're a Kelly. You're you know you're more like her father than you're like me. Your eyes aren't right. Your face isn't right. In the play, there's even a moment later on where Rosemary really presses him on this point and says like, "What do you do? Why are you why are you threatening not to leave the, your farm to your son? Because he he says like, I don't I don't want to leave the farm to Anthony. I'll leave him the money." But I want to mm -hmm. sell it to my nephew, who is a Riley, and who wants it, and and then I'll just give the money to to Anthony. He can go do something else. There's a pretty strong suggestion in the play that Anthony is not Tony's son. That, mm. that he, you know, because he even says when, when Rosemary says like, "What is the deal? Why are you not going to leave the farm to him?" He says, "There are things I have sworn to see. I've sworn to my wife that I would never say. I swore on a Bible I would never tell you, and I'm not I tell anyone, and I won't tell anyone." It's like straight out of As I Lay Dying. Right, he goes so he goes to his grave with this secret, and he and he, he I mean it seems the only obvious answer to the like the question of what the secret be in the play appears to be that that this was not that she had a son by someone else, and he even says that like while while later on there is this this really strange and moving story he tells he says when uh, Anthony was a kid and his sisters were kids. Uh, he didn't love their mother, that he didn't really love her until well into their mm -hmm. marriage. And and he sort of married her for convenience. He married her because he was lonely and they kind of got by and she sang in the kitchen. She was mm -hmm. lovely, but he never really cared for her. He never really gave her what she needed. And yeah. then he, he was struck by this feeling, this something in the field and he, he yeah. falls in love with her and he, he sells the plot of land, not because he needs the money to keep the farm going, but because he he wants to buy her a proper gold wedding ring. He'd have given her a brass ring. And so he, mm -hmm. he sells the the pat, patch of land to give her a proper ring. And he says they lived out the rest of their days in, in bliss. Um, that, it's such a strange revelation. I mean, it's it's, it's moving and it's sort of wrenching and it, it rings weirdly true. Uh, but then it also makes me think about the song Wild Mountain Time, which like is a mm. is a love song, but the yeah, end of the song is, if my true love will not come, then I'll surely find another to pull Wild Mountain Time. Like, so it, it does, and you, you hear that line in the movie. And so I kept thinking like, well, why is he suggesting all this without then doing anything with it? Or like, I, I, in the movie, it's, he backs off of it a little bit. It doesn't seem quite as, it's not quite as um, mm -hmm. uh, sharp toothed as a suggestion. 
but it just made me think like well why is it there what what yeah it's a this is a movie about being lonely yeah yeah, know, yeah yeah so much of it is about being lonely and i think the work itself the life that they're living comes with loneliness um even when ostensibly you're with somebody and and i th- i think that's one of the reasons why like i talked about that scene where in the house where like they block it such that they're moving to oh, to each other and away from each other yeah. a lot yeah the blocking of that scene was yeah <clears throat> and i think that yeah. this is one of those stories in a lot of ways that's about people moving towards and away from each other so mullingar is a the play takes place in killican um and i think it's a similar they make reference to a similar sounding type town in the movie but uh so Killigan is is a town outside Mullingar. Mullingar is a town the size of the small town I live in, which we don't even bother to say Barrow. <laughs> we just say like, oh, next to Chapel Hill, like left of Chapel Hill. So outside yeah. Mullingar is like, if your biggest landmark were the small town, I, you know, it's like 20,000 people. So that and the kind of the ugliness of the name really does give a sense of being out in the sticks, out, out in the middle of nowhere, out where nobody particularly cares that you're there. Nobody's especially interested in this little corner of the world. Mm. Uh, and I think that along with like stripping the play of all of the beautiful scenery of the movie and spending much of it like in a kitchen or like smoking outside by a barn, it feels, um, again, like with older, less attractive actors, it yeah. feels um, much more like the there's a, there's a real need for both like they talk about escape and a lot they talk about you know whether they use like one of them uses sports to escape or one of them looks at travel stuff or reads magazines or one of them even talks about like using technology just to like soothe himself because it's it's a way not to to not to think about his thoughts they talk about that a lot in the in the play and it and, and you see the need for it you see the need for some kind of diversion or distraction or some kind of something including the like her metaphorical sense of herself is something more than just a you know a farm girl and his maybe not metaphorical sense of himself is something other than a farm boy all of that yeah. feels like a lot more urgent um whereas yeah i mean i think the the title the title in a way like the title change suits the change in tone from the play mm-hmm. to the movie so again like i don't think outside mullingar is gonna sell a lot of movie tickets. I mean, I don't know if Wild Mountain Time did either. The 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 um, yeah, I don't think so. The the comparison that came to mind was the um, I can't remember the guy's name. He was the he was the showrunner of House of Cards, but he his break was a play called Farragut North, which is the street in D.C. where all the consultants are. And, oh yeah, and he he that play was adapted into a movie that they called The Ides of March, which had nothing to do with the movie, but they needed a snappier title for the movie, so they. You know, Farragut North, I felt like, was sort of... Is the, that the uh, one with Ryan Mullingar. Gosling? Ryan Gosling and uh, uh, George Clooney. Oh, Bo Willimon. Bo Willimon, that's right, that's right. And um, and a great uh, um, great Philip Seymour Hoffman, who was also in Doubt, who's... Um, boy, yeah, I, that's I, interesting, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I wanted somebody with that physical presence in this movie. Like, I wanted somebody with, like, with that sort of uh, growling you know, palpable misery and like to like depth of feeling that he had. He's yeah. He was, did you, do you think that Jamie Dorman just didn't do a good job or that he just wouldn't have been capable of doing the job that you're looking for just given how 
handsome he is. <laughs> I think probably both. I think he's not a great actor. I think she, you know, Emily Blunt's a wonderful actress and did very well in, in this. I thought she played, but that role is also a little bit of a, I mean, she's referred to as a beauty and she's referred to as, she is a little bit of a, uh, a, a, a slightly, you know, wild and furious, fiery farm lass who's, who's yeah. has, who's sort of imperious, but then also uh, smitten, you know, by this, by her love for this guy. Uh, yeah, his. I think the 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 complicated unhappiness that was required of the Anthony character. I think it would have been hard for anyone who looked like Jamie Dornan to do that. I also just think it. I just think it was not good. Handsome casting. people can be sad too. Of course, of course they can. <laughs> of course they can. But but he, yeah, like he's not. Um, like he was best. The best thing I've seen him in was in the when he played the like dead-eyed psychopathic, you know, serial killer in the fall where like, he, yeah, he's yeah. just like the sexy serial killer. And that felt yeah. like about the level of performance that made sense for him. But <laughs> no, I, again, like, yeah. I don't, he, he's, he's, he's what he is. And like, that's, that's great. I just felt, I felt for him. And that's why I actually was impressed by he, he and, he and um, Emily Blunt really got their in chemistry scene, yeah. going in that last scene, you know, yeah. but, but before then it just, I felt like he was fumbling. I do think that one of the reasons, like, I think there's actually a physicality to everything Emily Blunt does that helps in that scene. You oh, know, this yeah, is no, like yeah. Emily Blunt's like, she's like an action star. Right. And she's a dance, like she's in right. Sicario. She's in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the, uh, what's the um, movie where it's like the um, action groundhog day with Tom Cruise. Edge of Tomorrow. Edge yeah. of Tomorrow. Yeah, she's yeah, yeah. in, uh, She's in the, she's the in, Quiet Place movies, which are sort of domestic and yes. action movies. Yeah, and and then she also does Mary Poppins, where she's dancing. Right. No, she's know, great. She, I mean, she's she's a true true movie star. I mean, she's terrific. Yeah. And and I think her physicality, absolutely, like she, she fills that dang kitchen up. You know. Yeah. In a oh, way yeah. that's like really compelling. Um, to me, she she kind of like helps make the movie. And I was going to ask you, like, who do you think is the main character in this movie? Like, ostensibly, it's. Jamie Dornan's character. Right. But I kind of wonder if it's not like the movie's greatest sympathies are not with her. The last, like on the hillside, you know, who oh, is my, putting I mean, the time in her hair. My sympathies were totally with with her in the movie. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I I think she's uh it's a there's a like the problem that happens occasionally with with movie this was a little bit the case with the master. I don't know if you ever saw this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is a movie where like the the probably most... my favorite director. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's wonderful, and I actually love that. I, mean, I think that movie's really brilliant, and it's sort of. But I think one of the reasons it got a slightly colder reception than it might have is that I think that's a movie where the the most obviously interesting character is not the protagonist, and I think she's really magnetic and really fascinating, and I mean that like that's the the old you know line a director told me a million years ago was he was the first act the the job the actor's first job is to create interest and she's really really good at creating interest she's the person you want to watch on the screen and that's true that can be true of beautiful actors it can be true of character actors it can be true of yeah, anybody for sure um yeah he, jamie dornan is really really pretty and he's working his ass off in this movie and my heart went out to him but he just doesn't draw attention the way she did so no I, I think i think the movie was sort of structured for him to be the protagonist but she's the one who makes most of the interesting choices she's the one you want you care about she's the one you're sort of who seems to go through the crisis where she goes to New York and back. So that just felt like a little bit of a, a little bit of a formal problem with the movie. Um, which like, I do, but one thing that's you know, interesting about the world, but yeah, 
One of the things interesting about that, though, is the way she is both like, um, okay, I'm going to use really broad sweeping terms here because I can't think of another way to put it, but she's like the agent of his sort of like salvation. Yeah. Not, and I don't mean like in a, you know, this is a Catholic movie salvation sense, but in the sense of like within the context of the story, she's like the agent that saves him. Yeah. yeah, Uh, yeah. Her affection for him, her commitment to him, her acceptance of him is what saves him. And yet she also is this deeply lonely, addicted person who's trying to figure out who she is and and her ability to be, to be uh, committed in her affection for him. And also, trying to figure out who she is 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 one of the things that's really compelling about this story oh totally i mean i'm sure she, that's in the play yeah. too uh, no yeah i mean certainly it, it is a little bit less pronounced in the play because they are they are a little bit better matched in the play and they're also like i'm seeing it on the page but i'm imagining yeah. you know brian yeah. o'burn and deborah messing at her age i think like that they're you know they're both in their 50s and the, these actors are both in their late 30s um so no i mean yeah. I, I i think that's certainly true it, it felt to me like um almost like behind every barely functional man is like a great woman is how it's like, like yeah like she he definitely would be sort of lost if it were not for her but that, that felt so like, do you see that as too saccharine or do you see that as no like i thought that was fine thing. like it felt to me like there was a inside of the sort of weird sometimes semi-magical sometimes like corny sometimes like slapstick movie there was a pretty touching fairly traditional love story that i totally but like i you know i certainly don't think like yeah like the whole feminist not feminist thing is just completely the wrong way to look at it i just think like this is this is totally credible there are people who fall in love this way there are people who have relationships like this this i believe this is specific and it's it's invested with you know real care and it it seems to matter to them no i i have no objection at all to that and again like i sort of just wanted it to let itself be that weird slightly old-fashioned movie you know yeah and that's probably why the you know, I don't know people respond to it so weirdly because if it just had leaned into that more they'd be like no this is just a weird movie you know and right. then no, that's no, what they yeah. would tell people i think Instead, people didn't like the goofiness of it but they they wouldn't have liked the 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 heart of it if they had bought if like there'd been less goofiness it's almost like princess bride in the sense that it just leans all the way into Princess Bride does all the yeah, way yeah, into yeah. its sort of like just nonsenseness. Him rolling down the hill and yelling as you wish, and yeah, yeah. the just the ridiculousness of the swamp, and you know the the torture, like it, all of that is is like we don't we don't even pretend right. to like make to have to try to like explain any of it. It just leans all the way into all those those tropes and ideas yeah. in a way that it's just weird. But then now, and at the time, I think people were a little bit like, eh, but then over, but then over time. Oh, and, and Princess Bride's like a wonderful it. magical story, but you're, you're actually, that's a really smart comparison. Cause I think you're right that there is something very campy and goofy about the princess bride and something really sincere and romantic about it. Yeah. It's still um, like this, you know, classic love story right i mean and very in the midst traditional of traditional old-fashioned weirdness the oh, t- yeah t- totally yeah and it, it just it brings me back to like the difficulty of managing tone which like even yeah. i feel like a terrible teacher sometimes like when i when i have i've taught a class in fiction recently and i found myself again and again like pointing to these stories and saying like wow it 
it would have been really easy for this story to be horrible and like unbearably annoying or like boring or yeah. sarcastic. And yet like the tone is just, just managed just right. And I think that's, that's certainly the case with the princess bride. It does help to have, you know, what, you know what I think would have helped in this movie because they, they sort of do that, but they don't quite commit is they have, they have Christopher Walken do a voiceover and he says, you know, if, if an Irishman dies in the middle of a story, you can, you know, you can, you bet that he'll be back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah and, yeah, and he does that kind of at the beginning and the end, and he sort of he he says like, "Welcome to Ireland." Hey, I'm you know I'm Tony Riley. I'm dead, and so it's a little bit outside the movie, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like there's enough of a violation of the fourth wall. It feels a little bit like it's it's in the same soup of corny, goofy, magical Irishness that the whole movie is in, and I feel like there's there is a real benefit to in the Princess Bride the hard break between the world of the fairy tale and the world of the grandfather. The kind of the, the grouchy mm. old, I see you know, what you're saying. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, um, what's his Columbo grandfather? Yeah, Columbo guy. Like yeah. That 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 helps the tone a lot in the movie, and I think something yeah. like some, you know, in a way, because you were talking a about framing device, right? Yeah, and like the the you're referring to the the kind of faux phony Irishness as being a kind of like setting the stage for Americans to look at a story they might not be able to look at if it were set in America by saying like oh let's let's imagine ireland but in a way like mm -hmm. i feel like the, you kind of want there to be you want to see the edges a little more to like let it wouldn't take away from the magic any you know like we can mm -hmm. you can we will fall just as much in love with a story inside of a framing device as we will outside of one but it will also the framing device allows us to let go of of any of that uh what's the, what's the the keats line um uh uh anxious negative anxious reaching after uh, oh, some, oh yeah, yeah, yeah whatever he says the opposite of negative capability yeah and even if you had like that um that framing device at the end of it you could have th somebody being like what right you know like you could have the little kid <laughs> saying he and then and then then you say did he actually think that but then the old then the grandfather like let's say we're borrowing the princess yeah, yeah, framing yeah. device. the oh. grandfather could just not answer so then it right. like brings the question to the fore, makes it part of the conversation and highlights that. Uh, Absolutely. You know, no, that, and, and that, yeah, that's and really that, interesting. You can get away with so much by doing that. And it, and it, you can really have your cake and eat it too with a, with a device like that. So yeah, I mean, I'm gonna have to think about this. Yeah. I, I, um, uh, that's the, the line, um, that's, you know, like Nietzsche's account of the, the, um, the chorus in the Greek tragedy is it like it, that's, that sort of, they're like the grandfather and the kid that separate us from the world of the the tragedy. So it's a little bit more than real, and that's okay. Like we don't we don't have to believe that the the Oedipus is like contiguous yeah, with right. our reality. You know. Yeah. Who reads Henry the Fifth and doesn't like the chorus? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's I don't I don't know if you know the old um, Lawrence Olivier Henry the Fifth. Well, I mean, in the sense that I've watched it, but it's been it's been sure a, yeah, dec yeah, yeah. a decade probably. But he does he does a really wonderful thing in that where you see a really like richly realized uh, vision of a of like effectively the Globe Theater with people watching the play mm. Henry V. Okay, yeah. and then you sort of zooms at some point like you see a couple a scene or two played or the prologue played out that way, and then you sort of zoom in on the backdrop. And you see, even in the movie itself, when he he sort of zooms into the backdrop, and suddenly you're in a, a like a, a more like a, a a landscape with depth, and their castles, and their knights, and their horses. But you still have occasionally let that that backdrop that's like a fluttering, you know, uh, scrim. Uh, 
behind yeah, so it's like what Branagh does where at the beginning he has him behind st- backstage with all the props but yes. then later on he's walking out onto the cliffs by where they execute the right. traders. yeah no exactly so so you do have that that sense of um uh being being guided into a storytelling not just into a story yeah and i could see that here like even highlighting the sense of it being a folk tale, tale or a fairy tale or something like that like you could you could have uh an irish american grandfather telling like yeah. maybe maybe on the way in a way i could i could see the argument being well it kind of puts too fine of a point on it and it maybe diminishes yeah, a little sure, bit of the mystery sure. of it but um, like if it's a story full of blarney like that's great like that's what that's what those stories are the stories are full yeah. of like things that don't make sense and things that are a little too real and a little too much yeah. you know yeah um, and yet they're also so real right yeah because who can't who doesn't sometimes feel like they're something else although uh have you read that uh jamie dornan in in comments after it came out people asked him Okay, explain the ending. And so he said, well, I, first of all, don't ever ask somebody. To no, do don't, a, don't have to act, 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 asking actors like asking an athlete. Just yeah, exactly. Go. So, so then he says, well, I, you know, I asked John Patrick Shanley what I'm supposed to, how, how he wants me to play this. Does he really think he is that? Or is he, does he have some kind of mental health issue or like how do i supposed to feel this and shanley said well i think we all kind of feel like we're things that we're not sometimes and jamie dornan said he kind of laughed about it and he said yeah yeah like we all feel like we're being and shanley's like very earnest like i think we really all do feel like we're things that we're not but he wouldn't explain what he meant by that right, right. and Which that's part of I, what's wonderful about shanley's writing yeah yeah exactly but, i mean you see it in um like i said my friend josh gibbs he he's written about joe versus the volcano pretty extensively and you get the same sort of questions and vibe even yeah. in Joe versus the volcano and some of his other stuff. I mean, to, to a degree with doubt as well, but that's like, that's a different tone. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, yeah. That's, that's quite a different tone, but no, I mean that that's part of what is wonderful about his, his like the like deep sincerity of some of his choices is that you say like, Oh, it's, he doesn't think he's a bee uh, like she thinks she's a swan as a, as a kind of a self-conscious metaphor. He really thinks he's a bee. And she, you know, and he, she says, and apparently he said as well. We all think we're things we're not. There is some sense in which he is sort of putting a, you know, putting his finger on the point that, like, no, you believe you are something. You literally believe you are something. You literally are not. Like we, yeah. we do carry around those actual delusions as well. We yeah. just, we, they're just not as obvious to us as his is. Right. And then you so say, on the one hand, you have the literalness, and then that bumps up against the metaphor of her with the swan. Yeah. And I like that the movie like kind of just leaves them both there, the literal and the metaphorical. Yeah. And then they have to like, she has to figure out how to navigate that. I think that's just a really fascinating way to just leave it. Right. To not yeah. answer that. No, I mean, that that's the, the, and she says, and both of them the play in the movie, he says, she says, I'm mad as well. And he says, well, how are you mad? And she said, you won't, you won't find out until it's too late. <laughs> it seems like, yeah, I mean, that that's, it. it felt like a, both a a kind of an old-fashioned and a relatively truthful depiction of falling in love and getting you know getting married like i i I believed it and i yeah uh, have you are you familiar with billy wilder's movie the apartment no okay so it's one of my favorite movies okay and in my in my view it's like the greatest romantic comedy ever all right um it's about the like uh businessmen who buy an apartment to have affairs in there is a there is the there's a guy who works for an insurance company and his bosses use his apartment. Ah, I see. To and like they basically force him to let them use the apartment as they're like, you know, 
hideaway spot. So then, but then he falls in love. This is 19, 1959. He falls in love with the, uh, the elevator operator who basically he sort of also feels protective about because right. she's being treated poorly by their collective boss. And in a way it's about these two people coming together, figuring out what that looks like, but also about what it means to be human, <laughs> like yeah, not yeah, to yeah. be a jackass. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray. Like it's an incredible cast. And I think about this movie in this, it, it doesn't have the magical realism, but I, I like them for some of the same reasons. And the endings both have that effect of what you're talking about, where she says, you'll find out when it's too late. Yeah. Because in, in the apartment at the end, they come together having endured some sort of rough things together and looked out for each other. But there is also, it's not a pure resolution. There is also the sense of stasis, like that they're not all the way there as people or as, as their relationship. So there's hope, but you don't know what the future holds. Right. And so it's a romantic comedy that also holds that sort of tension that you never totally know a person. It's a romantic comedy that has like a really dark edge to it. Like that has questions of suicide, that has questions of fate, that has questions yeah. of like, who are you? There's the scene where uh, like, like the movie uses mirrors a lot where people are like looking in mirrors either on purpose or on accident and a lot yeah. of really interesting imagery. So to me, I watched the, they kind of, they're very different movies, but I like them right. for some of the same reasons because it holds, holds both the romantic comedy elements and these sort of more complicated, uh, occasionally dark questions and tension. And that's actually a great, it's a great context in which to have a, a, you know, not necessarily straightforward, but a, a sincere, uh, touching love story because it, mm -hmm. it has all of the crassness and and like harshness and sarcasm of these guys. This, this boss, you know, using it's like in cruel behavior to the his employee. You know, presumably to some of these women. It's sort of it's it's so ugly and it's such a it's such a sort of a gross setting yeah. for a lovely yeah. story. I, and I think that like the 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 darkness and ugliness and bleakness of the play makes for a do you know the robert von warren essay pure and impure poetry uh not well he, yeah he, he talks about how like part of what makes the balcony scene in romeo and juliet so credible is that it's preceded by this really profane uh rant by mercutio about mm. with all these puns on ladies body parts that it's like it's a very it's it's this point of like real cr crassness that then when you it's only against that you know it's against that black velvet that the diamonds of the mm. their sort of pure love scene sparkle and i think mm. there is something about this movie that it it is it's beautiful and magical and sincere in its love story but it doesn't have enough of a it does there's not enough of a total more black contrast velvet. to yeah a little like either either darkness or like a, you need like a character. You have like the one character who's bad news, Cleary, who just tells people bad news. But you, wait, like even even like John Hamm is not. He's like a you know he's he's sort of cartoonishly. Like, What's going on around? Right, here? like he he's he's like he rents a Rolls Royce, which is insane. And like like can you even rent a Rolls Royce at a small town you know airport? But and then he he like he <laughs> says to her at one point like I'm of the school that says like you should let go of of childish dreams because they're going to ruin your life. But uh, otherwise, like he's he's pretty understanding of everything. Like he's not like a, 
he's not like a, a, a he, he like kisses her and he says, well, I'm a gentleman, so I'm going to walk you to your apartment. It's like, it's not like he's the Mercutio. He's, mm -hmm. he's just like a different guy who's, who's like, is not the guy she falls in love with. But in a way, she, he has to seem like a credible possibility. Oh, totally, totally. Right. For her so, to yeah. actually have a choice. No, I think, no, that, that's very true. And because she does, she says, when he kisses her, she says, oh, um, what have you done? Do you know what you've done? Which is, of course, and presumably what he's done is he's 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 made this a real possibility in her mind. Um, so it is something to think. Yeah. So that's true, and that like he's probably not the right candidate for some contrasting backdrop. But you you know, I read it like you know it was in some interview with Lars von Trier. I think it was in when he was doing Melancholia, where he talked about <laughs> well, like, that's he, a movie, right? Yeah, I yeah I love that I love that movie. But he he said like he his you know for him he has such a bleak vision of the world that. He always wants there to be hope in his movies, but he doesn't believe the hope unless it's unless it's set against the darkest possible background. Yeah, I mean it's Flannery O'Connor, right? Right. Like the redemption's meaningless unless there's a darkness that it is overcoming. She would have been a good woman if there, it had been somebody that would hold a gun to her life every or go the underhead every moment yeah. of her life. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, no, that's true. No, I and I yeah, I, I get that. I think probably like the tensions of like what you're going for. And the marketplace sure yeah 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 you know are so tricky for movies and you he probably should have just not worried about it <laughs> you're saying this was never going to be a lars von trier movie <laughs> <laughs> now, now lars von trier version of uh wild mountain time that would be quite a thing i would kind of be interested in seeing a, i mean i guess the, his version of romance was breaking the waves which is just like <laughs> well you know he, you know okay so here's the thing this would be a fast like if you gave okay let's give P.T. Anderson, we've got Shanley's version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lars von Trier, uh, uh, Jane Campion. Right, uh, right, right. right. Um, who, who else? Like, Wes, give like Wes five. Anderson. Oh, Wes Anderson. <laughs> oh, well, that would be hilarious. Yeah. And then we need like we need somebody else, and like you give them all the scripts, and then see what happens. That would be fascinating yeah. because the the inter because of the concept and a lot of yeah, yeah, and yeah, the yeah, way yeah. the script would read the 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 ways that you could interpret that are like numberless okay. steve mcqueen was that the name of the director who did uh, uh shame and 12 years a slave yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah he would he, i'd like to see his version too I, what about the guy who did um if bill street could talk um uh oh, and then he did know. he just did underground railroad um oh d it was the director of no i don't know who directed underground Railroad. um barry jenkins oh okay okay yeah 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 um you know there's and then of course you could do like <laughs> who's the eighteen eighty three guy Tyler Taylor oh, Sheridan oh god yeah the uh, Yellowstone yeah Yellowstone yeah then do the Taylor Sheridan I mean you know, there's just like it the Shonda all of these Rhymes, guys could yeah. bring yeah they could bring their own that's, view that's great so like, yeah a way of doing it when we need Goldberry Studios to fund this uh, multi billion dollar project uh, yeah well, I'm, let's start P T Anderson because I'd love to know what he would do with this yeah no that, that's, that's because great. like you look at uh um punch drunk love and there's some elements similar elements in that story to this one um yeah, yeah that's a that's a why i rewatched that recently and it is i it's i mean it's it's captivating and and beautiful and they're the actors are so good in it uh another great brief philip Seymour Hoffman performance um yeah yeah uh true but it I couldn't help but watching this time thing like, oh, this is a movie about people with borderline personality disorder. Like it's, yeah, it's so it, it's, um, 
which I guess is part like it, it's so intense and extreme and insane that it needs to be a really short movie and then just end there. And you like, you seen Phantom Thread? Yeah. Which is, which is, I actually was thinking like, that's a, a kind of an interesting companion romance to Punch Drunk Love. Cause it's another like sort yeah. of talk, to- like toxic romance that has, but it's, it's also not like, you can't dismiss it. You can't write it off. Right. Well, but then in that movie, while he is kind of like a narcissist, you don't watch that movie and go, oh yeah, this is the movie about the narcissist. No, no, no. Yeah, exactly. Like she's, I, yeah, that's to, true. I yeah, think yeah. I, I go back and forth on this. I think that might be his best movie. And I mean, yeah. I love, you know, there will be blood and the master and the master. I find a little less rewatchable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I saw hard uh, eight recently for the first time, which is, which is tough to watch, but very good. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean the Phantom Thread is so exquisitely made. It's just, just so precise. Yeah, I, yeah you no, know, like when he gets all wandery, like right. you know, that's great. Yeah, but it's yeah. a different thing. And when he does this, when he gets that, like so precise, the way he does in Phantom Thread, where like no shot, no moment is out of place. I mean, that's not what we're here to talk about. But right, yeah, and my yeah. computer's probably going to die before we get through that one. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask you this is sort of sort of a non sequitur, but you do you host the Daily Poem along with uh, Close Reads, and I'm curious because you are this, uh, this will reveal my prejudice. I grew up in in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, which is Baptist country. Um, I was raised Catholic there. And my mm. um, my uh, impression as a kid, I went to Catholic school. Most of the people I knew were Catholic, uh, and our, there's some uh, Jewish, fa- you know, family that married into our family. So we we had some of the, those friends. But uh, my impression was that Catholics and Jews were intellectuals, and Protestants were not. And then I and then I moved to Maryland, and I were like, there are lots of Catholics, and I was like, oh, th- oh, there are like dumb, ignorant Catholics too. <laughs> um, and, but, but I, like, I also then like part of what I find fascinating about like the, the, uh, you know, you run this bookshop and these podcasts and, um, and you've even said on Twitter, like you, you explicitly like are not interested in, in like s- books or stories that are movie or movies that are trying to teach a lesson. If I, maybe I read that wrong, but I think that was what you said. Yeah, I would say that. While I would go say that there's more to that than sure, yeah, how of I course, put it yeah, in it's not simplistic. 240 yeah. characters or whatever, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I it, would say that, yeah, yeah. But you're a you're you and your like your affiliations are with like honest to god, you know, classically grounded intellectual Protestants, which I'm I just sort of fascinated by because I didn't encounter that growing up. But I'm although ironic, although ironically, my family and I are are greek orthodox or Eastern oh orthodox. you're greek orthodox oh maybe yeah. i maybe antiochian I, oh. orthodox but that's not oh. I, that's not the hit that's not where i came from oh okay oh so you converted yes oh interesting okay yeah. yeah that that is a that is a conversation for another for another yeah night. that's fascinating but, yeah i mean i think that you know a lot of the protestant intellectual tradition in america is complex <laughs> yeah oh yeah uh, <laughs> there is there certainly is a tradition i just it's yeah. I, I encounter it less in contemporary culture contemporary conversation because like in yeah i'm used to hearing uh brainy bossy catholics uh uh yeah declaim yeah. about brainy bossy catholicism but no the, the question i have specifically is this it's a problem i've run into recently in thinking specifically about lyric poems and lyric poems of a particular kind kind which is poems in which the the consolation or the volta or the final turn is grounded in the 
not necessarily something as simple or something not simple, but something as uh, discreet as the existence or non-existence of God, but, but basically like the, the hopefulness or bleakness of the universe. And I think it's different with epic poetry. It's different with dramatic poetry. It's different when you have a lot more architecture, mm. but specifically mm. with the lyric where the goal is to stir an emotion in the reader. I find that while I have great admiration for the structure and the, um, the, you know, the deafness and the subtlety of some of Herbert's poems and some like Dunn is a, has a range, but like some of his holy sonnets, um, mm -hmm. and like Gerard Manley Hopkins, I find that the, 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 the constellation or the turn or the, but yet, but this of those poems leaves me cold because it often relies on, but don't worry, there's things will be okay. Like there's this other source of hope. And, and I, because I, I don't believe in God, I think, well, shit, that seems sort of disappointing that that be like, I, I, I want to believe that art is richer than just what, you know, the, like the, the needing to answer strictly to what you believe. And, and, and conversely, I know a lot of religious people who find some of the poems of like Larkin or Hardy or Stevens mm -hmm. to be sentimental in their bleakness, to be sort of like excessive or like they kind of roll their eyes at the, uh, um, you know, uh, what's the um, postman like doctors go from house to house or whatever the ending of, you know, uh, all bad is like they, they roll their eyes a little bit in the in a way that feels parallel at the, at the, yeah. at the kind of the nothingness at the heart of some of those poems. Whereas I find that in a way, not consoling, but I, I find, I, I hear an echo in those poems that makes me feel less alone. So I, I'm curious because you, you're somebody who, who reads very Catholicly, small C, and I know you have an admiration for Larkin and Hardy and, and others. Um, do you, is that a problem that even, that even comes up for you at all? Or is that something that, uh, what do you make of that? Am I just, is that just my own neuroses? I would imagine that even if it's not a problem that I have, it's probably not just your own neuroses. Well, okay. Yeah, that's a big question. Um, or at least a comp one that I need to so think about. It's a, a weird, it's a weird question. <laughs> I think I am always inter more interested personally in poetry that ends with more questions than answers sure yeah 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 um the poems that end with a surprise where that that turn is you know it's 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 saying okay this this is you thought the poem was about this but then now we've got this question here and that's going to reshape the way you think about the eight or 12 lines that came before or whatever it is um i mean even in like sometimes in contemporary sonnets especially you'll even you even get that like they'll use the architecture of the form to reshape what the poem is about. So I think there is a sense in which I do understand. I don't always find the sort of hopefulness of those sort of lyric, religious lyric poems to be particularly as meaningful as I think they are for some people or as they intend to be. Okay. So although we maybe have different theological perspectives or beliefs or whatever mm -hmm. i understand where you're coming from on that because and i don't actually i find that poems that leave me contemplating 
the questions or even doubts are more theologically and spiritually consoling than the ones that provide all the answers. Um, I think that, um, but I, but, but I, I, when I, I want to add this, I think that the best of those kind of poems, like, especially like Dunn's poems, which you mentioned is a little different are embedded with a great deal of doubt as well. And like, even oh, the yeah. metaphors of faith and like relationship with God and things like that are so complex and varied and, um, strange (laughs) yeah yeah, that they that they kind of like raise the question of what it like they raise doubts about the question of what i don't know if doubts they raise questions about the nature of relationship with god that are very complex right so that you don't even if at the end he seems to put a fine point on it everything that came before it is more complex i think the greatest poems even the greatest religious poems and and stories manage to do that yeah, um, I think that takes us back to O'Connor again, too. But I don't know if that answers your question. No, I think I think it actually does help because uh, I mean that's like there's all the difference in the world to me between "Batter My Heart" and "Death Be Not Proud." I'd like I think of like <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, yeah, dearly I love thee, love thee, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto thine enemy. Like the 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 tension in "Batter My Heart" between what he wants to do and feel and the way he wants to live and the, and the way he finds himself living and the he, he's uh um uh i'll never be chased unless you ravish me you know like literally you know i i won't live right unless you rape me unless you force yourself on me that is a feeling a lyric feeling i can understand regardless of what i believe in i think i think death you're not proud and some other the desperation yeah right in you the know, imagery i think there are there's some poems where and Herbert does this sometimes where like the ending feels a little bit like, ta-da, God. And that I just find, like, and you know what? I, I thought of another example is, um, which is not a religious poem at all, but uh, Shakespeare's Sonnet 30, which is beautiful and rightly, you know, celebrated when to the sessions of Sweet Silent Thought. But it is it is like 29, but it goes um, the, uh, the, the Volta comes a little later in 30. And the Volta, after all of this bad shit he's moaning about, uh, the sad account of four bemoaned bone, which I knew pay as if not paid before, and everything's awful, and I, there's no hope. And then he ends, but if the while I think on thee, dear friend, all losses are restored and sorrows end. And I always think like, bullshit. Like, what? Like, if the while I think on thee, dear friend, all losses are restored and sorrows end. Why? What? How? What? Why are we here? Right. Like, so to me, that feels, that's like, ta-da, the beloved, but it feels to me very much like, ta-da, God. Like, yeah, yeah. It's an it's, so, a, it's um, an answer that's provided that's meant to pro- that offer consolation, but it doesn't. Yeah, doesn't move. But it, it, yeah, it doesn't. So it doesn't move me. I don't think either. But it does, in a sense, suggest the degree of the love that the poet has for right. Yeah, the person yeah, yeah. who he is writing to in Shakespeare in that right. case. It's almost like a um, a. Um, an epic simile or a yo mama joke which similar like they have like the similar structure where they like they build up with this big like a big image or a big compare a big you know a scene and then the end of that is all the whole point of it is because yo mama so fat or or like yeah and yeah. and in that way did he cut through the throngs or it like and that's yeah, how yeah. much i love you they have that kind of yeah. you know front, yeah. front loaded structure 
Um, I would not have thought to put it that way, but I think that about sums it up. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Well, th thank you so much for doing this. I know I've, I've kept you oh, for yeah. a while, but I'm, I'm really uh, grateful. And I, I um, had a lot of fun talking with you about this weird mm -hmm. fucking movie, <laughs> which I'm glad one. I saw. I wouldn't, I would not yeah. have read the play or seen the movie if not, if not for you. So. You know, it's, and it's interesting. It's not, it's one of those movies that I don't think is perfect. And I've sure. watched it a bunch, yeah, yeah, as yeah. you said, I agree with a lot of your assessments. I think it has its flaws, but <clears throat> it's also one of those movies that the things that I like, are I really like, and so I like to rewatch it. And I think that it has a lot to offer in that. Um, and I think that people don't know how to watch it, and I don't think people take it on its own terms. And I think that's why it gets, you know, gets has got some bad press. Sure. But I don't think people were ready to, you know, no, they, they people... were not going to. People came in expecting any number of things, and, and yeah, yeah. I, I would love to talk to Shanley and find out what he. Was anticipating his Rotten Tomato score. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, if you're if you're making art because you're trying to like get a certain Rotten Tomato score, then you know, oh, sure, get out of yeah, the no, get that, out of the game. Who, who but cares, you know what yeah. I mean? No, no, no. Certain. I mean, and there there like there are movies I love that that were not that that flopped. Yeah, like that's and Rotten Tomatoes today even feels like less and less reliable when you see like oh, the big yeah. disparities between their scores and the public you know response. Yeah. Yeah. No, even this movie was a fifty percent audience which is yeah. higher than i thought and then 26 percent or whatever so oh yeah which sounds which probably sounds sounds about right yeah no and i, I think i'm with you and like the thing about this movie that is good is a thing that is hard to find in other places you know right. like whether yeah, this is the right vessel it. for it or not it it's a thing that you you know it's worth digging out of this weird little little composition and it's, i i want more movies to be to be made where people are going for it like they're going for a particular vision they're going for something that you're not going to find everywhere else because every movie now is so the same yeah 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 you know that's like right. there's just so many movies that are the same that's why you know you'd like to see this year coda which is i i would argue like i, a, I don't what's coda it, it's a it's a movie that nominated for best picture and okay. it's um it's an apple tv movie and it's about uh, a girl who is the the child of deaf people okay. and she wants to be a singer uh she has this great skill and so it's about her carving out a way to be this singer despite the fact that her they're fishermen in massachusetts off the coast and they sure. need her help and it's about their family and it's Wait, very billy, pleasant what was that, what was that ballet movie billy something a while ago about the oh northern english kid oh shoot billy something billy dancer billy um, no. <laughs> i can't remember what it's yeah, called. yeah yeah but something yeah okay but she it's a uh, working, working class context and, and deaf yeah, parents and, and, and they're deaf and, and yeah, and she's this amazing talent and, and it's got nominated for best picture and it's a really, it's a pretty good movie. I don't okay. know that it's the best movie. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's got some great performances, but it's also a movie where, with a particular vision that's not a superhero movie. And I think that people right. are like, they still make movies like this <laughs> in America. Like yeah. we don't have to watch a Danish director. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and it's not P.T. Anderson. Right. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. No. That... And so I, you know, I think that I appreciate it when we, when we're able to get a movie like Wild Mountain Time, that's, that's although it has some of the trappings of traditional romantic comedy, it's also yeah, yeah, yeah. going for things that most people can't get away with. Right. Yeah. So. I know. I, 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 just, that's, I, I, I'm, I'm with you there. Like, I would rather see you do your weird thing and then, <laughs> then let's see what the result, maybe, you know, yeah, who knows? go weirder. That was my conversation with David Kern. You can find him on Twitter at D.A. Kern. 
Uh, you can also find them at Goldberry Books in Concord, North Carolina, and uh, on the podcasts Close Reads, The Daily Poem, Bibliography now, I think is already uh, doing quite well, and and another kids podcast that is not does not exist yet, but I'm sure will will come into existence uh, dazzlingly soon enough. Thanks so much to David for uh, speaking with me this week, and thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, you can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com or on Twitter at sleerickets. Uh, thank you so much. Um, with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.